Welcome to the Lightly Literary Podcast, the only book club podcast that always treats its referees with respect. I don't know if the listeners know this, Amanda, but we each have a referee in our respective recording rooms right now. Mm-hmm. I definitely have one sitting on my lap right now. You gotta make sure the podcast stays <laughs> in line. We've, we've stepped out of bounds a couple times. We've committed some errors and some fouls. So we always keep referees with us. They're well paid. You know, we train them well. We, they're well protected. We're, they're not going to get beat up by fans after the recording. And um, <laughs> I just think you can't have sports without them. It's bizarre to think, and this book briefly traces the history, but it is bizarre to think that sports at one time did not have a, a neutral arbitrator. <laughs> no refs. <laughs> yeah, what would we do? <laughs> I don't even know. Yeah, you got it's uh, schoolhouse rules, and you call your own fouls. Um, if you have no <laughs> idea why we're talking about sports referees, it is because you've stumbled upon a book club episode. These are analytical deep dive episodes. Today's book club part one episode will be on the... I don't know. What do you call this? Poetic history? <laughs> I guess so, yeah. Yeah, history, I guess. Like, brief um, brief history. It's not poems, either. It's going to be vexing Those to describe musings. all. Musings? Yeah. I would, or you, I guess you could call it an essay collection in the shortest possible form. So, <laughs> um, anyway, uh, it's called Soccer in Sun and Shadow by Eduardo. It's either Gallano or Galano. Um, the last name is spelled the G-A-L-E-A-N-O. And I know that this book has also been translated by Mark Fried or Freed, um, notably because I'm pretty sure Eduardo Gallano is from, or no, Uruguay, based on just some of the narration so far. He does know a lot about Uruguayan soccer history, <laughs> so it definitely seems like something he personally grew up with. Um, yeah, Soccer in Sun and Shadow is the essay collection we'll be discussing. If you've never listened to the podcast before, first of all, welcome. You're in a decent starting place here. We are, as I mentioned, the Lightly Literary Podcast. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook under that handle, so all one word, just at the Lightly Literary Podcast. That's where we post updates and reading notes, kind of like things that we're doing updates as to what we've been covering um the drawings are behind amanda there's just no question about it but <laughs> who knows how and when it's funny though because i've enjoyed the last couple of drawings i'm like oh these are these are turning out pretty well like i like them but then of course i'm behind so <laughs> i've got to just buckle down i think this will be a, my favorite ongoing recurring joke on the pod is me forever <laughs> referencing that I'll get caught up. But we do post Someday. there. Yeah, but we do post there, and it's it's up-to-date-ish, up-to-date enough. Obviously, follow us on any podcast platform to get the actual recent updates and releases of the books we're covering. That is your, your for sure best bet. Um, the point of a book club episode, as I alluded to, is to spoil, you know, deep dive analysis, cover everything in depth as much as we see fit. And so if you do not want the first half of this book of essays, I don't know, spoiled, quote-unquote, for you, or if you don't want to listen to that discussion, feel free to hit pause and come back after you've read we certainly get that and and the book will be up in our feed our little podcast archive forever so it'll be here when you are ready to read today we'll be discussing the i'm just going to keep calling them essays <laughs> even though it yeah. doesn't feel quite right like micro essays but um, we'll be discussing from the author's confession which is the first one all the way through goal by gento I'm not even sure if I read that one, but it's okay. These are so brief that it doesn't even really matter. Um, there are 100% no content warnings for this. It's mostly discussions of politics, sports, and history, and soccer, obviously. Soccer and Sun and Shadow is the title after all. I'll briefly set up why I chose this, I guess. This was my pick. I'm feeling pretty good about it halfway through. I feel like it was, yeah. it's a solid choice. I, my thinking was pretty straightforward. Um, I'm on kind of a two-to-one ratio thing where it's like I'll pick two fiction and then one nonfiction for our 
for our podcast. That doesn't Matt doesn't work out perfectly every time, but that's kind of where my head is. So I knew I needed a nonfiction, and then I looked back over all the topics we'd already chosen, and sport was one of the only big absent things. I mean, I guess some other like pop culturey stuff that we could have picked, but sport is big. Um, is, are sports a big part of your life? Do they matter to you at all? Not really. I mean, yeah. The the biggest sport I think for for my family is um, football. Sure, <clears throat> but American. But even then, yeah, American football, and, and a and a little bit of hockey, but like mostly American football, right. and it's not it's not that that important. Yeah, definitely. I me too, and I grew up playing a ton of sports, like a lot of I think American children do anyway. Tried out just about every single one. Eventually played a lot of yeah American football, soccer, tennis in high school, which I still really like. And I I guess I learned during COVID that watching sport to me is actually kind of social and situational. Like I didn't really stick with sports through COVID too much (laughs) or too often Mm -hmm. since, you know, there were already no audiences or crowds. And then also I couldn't really watch them with anybody. And so I think I've learned that about myself is that I I might be a more of a casual sports fan than I realized, but I definitely love them. I'll watch basically any major sports playoffs, even baseball, which I really dislike. (laughs) I'll even tune into, (laughs) or, you know, I'll watch if people are watching it. If I have friends watching, it's like, I can put up with a good game of baseball in the playoffs even if I basically never watch a a baseball game in real life. Anyway, I love soccer, follow it closely, and I tried to pick a book that would subject you to soccer but would not be too kind of history-dense or history-focused, I guess, because there are infinite books uh, in a nonfiction perspective about soccer, about the history of the game, the tactics, the legacy. I looked at a couple books that are very that were very political about how like various nations when they play each other, what happens on the pitch, and kind of like how soccer can reflect the current society and the current happenings of the day. There's a million mm-hmm. ways to analyze the sport. It's huge. It's you know it's the global sport. But um, this one just seemed the most poetic, and I thought it would be the most kind of easygoing to read. Have you found yeah. it to be so? Yeah, it's been um, it's been surprisingly enjoyable, and it's also helpful that it's <clears throat> there's not a whole lot of like technical language being used because I right. don't follow the sport. There, there is one piece where like there's like the positions, the soccer positions, and I was mm-hmm. just like, okay, I don't understand that part. But like right, for the right. most part, it's just been very. It's more of like a an artistic and philosophical take on it, which which I find quite enjoyable. Yeah, it even seems, if I had to guess, that the author, who I think has passed, by the way, I didn't actually double check that. Maybe I'll search it during the during the pod. But yeah, I it, think he passed. It, it seems like he would hate the current iteration of the game with like advanced statistics all this deep analysis all this data all this yeah. i mean money he also hates kind of the commercialization of the game and so it's like i don't even think he would really care about <laughs> some kind of current iteration it would be too it, the, the product has been too sanded down for him i think and so mm-hmm. even yeah it, he definitely likes and enjoys the sport from a different lens um i think we've set this up thoroughly enough so let's dive in we treated this one like an essay collection which again it technically sort of is so that i think is a good description though the 
essays are brief. Some are just a paragraph or two long. So it's very fast reading. Uh, we each picked four, and then I realized at the end that we had both chosen contact therapy. So I just lumped Perfect. my thoughts onto yours. So we're going to talk about seven of these little micro essays. Again, we each picked four, and then I just combined with yours at the end. Uh, I will start, since I chose the earliest possible one, at least in my mind. I didn't pick his confession, <laughs> which was interesting, actually. Um I chose from page two, soccer, which um, the summaries, by the way, of these will be very brief. There's not really much to summarize. He, he takes a look at these micro, micro topics. And so anyway, I will briefly summarize it. It's basically the whole is history of soccer. He lays out in three pretty brief paragraphs the entire history of the sport I, the reason I chose this is because I think it reveals a lot of his beliefs and a lot of his biases, um, which is very meaningful to the rest of the book because he is quite opinionated, which makes the reading kind of fun and interesting. He's a very slanted point of view of the game. And I just think you have to really understand this first one before you go into the further ones. Um, some quotes from paragraph two here. Play has become spectacle, with few protagonists and many spectators, soccer for watching. And that spectacle has become one of the most profitable businesses in the world, organized to not to facilitate play, but to impede it. The, tech, um, the technocracy, or te I always struggle with that word. It's like techno it's like technocrat, technocracy, I guess, of professional sport has managed to impose a soccer of lightning speed and brute strength, a soccer that negates joy, kills fantasy, and outlaws daring. And then he says, luckily on the field, you can still see, even if only once in a long while, some insolent rascal who sets aside the script and commits the blunder of dribbling past the entire opposing side, the referee, and all for the carnal delight of embracing the forbidden adventure of freedom. So I think the forbidden adventure of freedom might be, you know, is that a thesis, could we say? <laughs> I think so, yeah. Yeah, he, he revels in kind of idiosyncratic players, obnoxious, bold, ambitious players. That's definitely what he loves. And I think, you know, as sports have become more professionalized over time, this often comes up in kind of sports, big picture, argumentative, pundit type talk. But it's like, if you put a player from 2022 on the field with a player from 1930, it would be a joke. Like we've, because the sports have become professionalized, like our athletes are so much more hyper tuned. I mean, their bodies are like insane machine-like things these days, other than, you know, they can still get injured. Um, and so I think his view of it is being kind of like he enjoys when it's a little more slapdash, when it's a little more open and flowy. And so I think, yeah, like we talked about her initially, those are quotes that show, I think he would kind of hate what the game has become. Like people are, it's not even just that they're too good, but the players are deployed in a way to just maximize an outcome rather than like, Hey, go kick around and have fun, <laughs> you know, go right. play a game. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Did, did I agree? Yeah. Did you find that philosophy to, is that how you watch football? <clears throat> I mean, it's, do you understand tactics and like strategy or do you just kind of, enjoy seeing fun stuff um i understand some of the the tactics and stuff like that because um <laughs> growing up my my brother and i also like would play with my dad and my dad would be the quarterback and it'd be like my brother and i kind of vying for the ball mm -hmm. <clears throat> but we know like what a hail mary is and like what the um well, what is it called like the button hook move and stuff like that like my dad taught mm -hmm. us a couple of plays um, right. So I know some of that stuff, but yeah, it's it's more for just I think the for me socialization and and just having fun with it. Yeah, which he he comes back to in other ones too. Are there any beliefs there that he lays out that you think are important that a reader would have to pick up on or something to 
to really get him. What I found interesting in this one was, and this is what I was kind of expecting more, He's he begins with the idea of beauty to duty. So, And then he goes mm-hmm. on to talk about like how it's like a ballet and stuff like that. But the language that he uses in describing... Um, soccer and and the way that these players move it some of them are like dancing but it's more aggressive i think in the language which is something that i picked up on in one of the ones that um in the language of war which is one of the pieces right. that i chose right <clears throat> which he he even uses it in this piece where he says kills fantasy outlaws daring it's brute strength, right? All these phrases that yeah. I think are, are actually more what he uses um, language-wise in describing soccer. Yeah, and I, I wonder, thinking about it now, I wonder if it's a macro-micro. Like, in the macro, he does use language of war. You know, it's a battle, it's a fight. And then when he wants to look at a play or even a player, it becomes very, yeah, like delicate, loving, daring. And there's, I think, a lot more kindness to his language there, too. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's a good snapshot of his beliefs. Anything else from that one? Otherwise, I think, again, like these summaries and analyses probably won't go on. I don't know if this will be a fast episode for good or for ill, but it's like these are such brief little snippets of his of his beliefs and thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. I'm good. Like, I I think that this is going to end up being pretty short, but but for for the better. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I think so. It's, It's part of the joy of reading it, too, or part of the. I don't know, overall experience of it. It never feels like heavy lifting. And you could even just read three and move on with your day if it doesn't grip you, which did, I think, happen yeah. to me at least once with this, where it was just kind of like, eh, these aren't really gripping me right now. I'm just going to put it away. You know, it's such a small test yes. or small investment to just try. And then other times I, you know, you can read 50 of these really easily too. So mm-hmm. anyway, let's jump to your first one. Mine is The Referee. And I forgot to write the summary, but that's, that's okay because I remember it. Yeah. Um, which and it's pretty easy to remember. Um, this is where he writes from, <clears throat> like his ideas about what it's like to be the referee, where it's a lot of uh, a lot of work for the referee and very little uh, appreciation <laughs> for yeah, the referee. Yeah. At the same time, it's like um, you know, it's a thankless job, and that's kind of what he explores in this this piece. Well, and I think too. I don't know what image or what idea jumped out the most to you in here, but to me it was his kind of, I don't know if it's like pillorying or critiquing. It's almost kind of a compliment, but a sad one, but it's about how much he has to work. It's like because of his ignoble or not enviable and enviable position, unenviable position that he's like exhausted. He's like a beast of burden or something. There's, um, it says nobody runs more. This interloper whose panting fills the ears of all 22 players is obliged to run the entire match without pause. He breaks his back galloping like a horse and return for his pains the crowd howls for his head from beginning to end he sweats oceans chasing the white ball that skips back and forth between the feet of everyone else so you know he's outcast interloper like there's the horse that was the you know the beast kind of image or comparison point it's um i thought yeah it's funny and kind of tragic too um yeah i I really enjoyed that description it's so many of his words kind of play well that way yeah and <clears throat> I, I like that he used the word interloper there because it's, I mean, it's his job to be like amongst them, but he's not a part of them at the same time. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I like, I think that that's an example of Galliano's like mastery of of the the language and of the 
<clears throat> the imagery that he's trying to shoot for in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, especially in this one, what I kind of picked up on, too, was, like, the the referee is a kind of... <clears throat> he's both, like, a leader of some sort, almost like a political leader. Like, somebody that they kind of look up to, but and that they can blame when things right, go wrong. Right. Yeah. Um, but he's also, like, a martyr, because he's, like... Mm-hmm. Uh, almost like a... Uh, Christ-like figure in that he's uh, he's trying to <clears throat> work so hard for everybody and for the pleasure of everybody, and then in the end, he's kind of like you know sacrificed to yeah to the to the fans. So and such an essential <laughs> role that I think we've come to underrate in the end. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but because I think the NFL's had things like this for a bit, but in soccer currently, there's a there's a push. I don't know, in the last five, ten years, to introduce electronic reviews of, like, where the, it's um. called VAR, it's like a video review system. So where the, with certain plays or close calls, the referee can go consult with the, I don't know who ultimately provides them the analysis, but it's all visual data and, like, analytics with the ball, and there's, it's like tennis imagery where they can capture, you know, up to, like, these very minute pixels like what happened and uh, some people are just like really hating it and it's getting a backlash because i think it's funny because it's you know like objectively better so to speak but then right with soccer too there's so much love of the game that goes beyond statistics and you know delves into poetics and philosophy and stuff and so a lot of people are just very protective of kind of like the flow of the game which is very hard Mm -hmm. to describe and there's not really a easy data point uh, for that, there's not like a simple way to convey and say, here's how I know the flow is worse, but people are currently kind of backlashing against that. And so, yeah, I think it's, it is a position that although fans, it's a, it's the love to hate cliche, like fans hate it, but mm-hmm. I think they love to hate it. And they, and when, when I, they'll book, yeah. if a referee costs them a game, they'll bemoan it for the rest of their lives. But there's a certain joy in that that people might not want to acknowledge or accept. It's like, I, I want to be able to complain about that. Yeah, yeah, that's what it is. They they want the scapegoat. Yeah, thankfully I can say no no longer sweating oceans. Most referees these days are physically fit. So I mean it's yeah. it's a hard it's hard work. <laughs> like it's it's ninety minutes of, of jog and running. Like it's there's no doubt. It's it's I'm not saying it's easy, but like there there are requirements now. It's not it's yeah. not somebody they picked up from the bakery down the street or um, I know this author likes the factory, kind of the vague or ambiguous all encompassing factory. It's not like they picked him up off the factory floor after work and was just like, You gotta come ref us, ref this game. <laughs> anyway, yeah. so yeah, um, nice one, a, g- a good pick. Um, I'm going to continue the trend, and I'll briefly t- touch on this now or talk about this now. The first probably I don't know ten, fifteen of these micro essays I thought were like phenomenal. I think when he gets into the actual history and World Cup stuff, it the the writing doesn't work as well. And so I was tempted to pick only essays from like the first 15 when he's really broadly laying out kind of his view of the game. Uh, I didn't do that because I thought that would be not a, you know, it's not a representative sample or whatever. But I will just say that I think his writing in these first 15 was like exceptional. I was like, well, this is perfect. Exactly what I was hoping it would be. It's so opinionated and insightful and kind of, you know, just has such a personalized slant. And then, yeah, the history stuff, I was like, man, some of these are just dull. Like, here's a couple of facts with, like, maybe 
a brief little insight, but there's just, I don't know, he's just not as adept, I don't think, at writing, you know, the facts of history or, or whatever. Anyway, that, yeah. that's all to say. I'm going to do one more from this opening bit called The Theater. This is on 14, my 14, 15. Um, basically, this is when he talks about the kind of histrionics that soccer players have, the sort of emotional acting that goes into the game. I will say this is probably the number one complaint among people who dislike or don't watch the sport. Have you like heard people complain about this? Uh, I don't. I don't know. I don't really talk to. Uh, you're like the only person I know that actively watches soccer. That's fair. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm the touchstone. Well, I'll, t- I'll tell you now, very briefly. It, there's the, the soccer players are well known for like f- overreacting or even sometimes faking things. You know, injury mm-hmm. penalties. Um, and this has crept into other sports, too, now, like basketball. This is starting to happen a bit more. And I just think it's something that American sports fans really loathe um, because it's not really culturally a part of many of our sports at all. And it is in soccer. It's like a, a active part of the game where p- players are expected to be performative, basically. Like if you get kicked in the foot and it's something you could normally just say a curse word and walk off, like you're expected to dive onto the ground, right? You're expected to like hold your foot and roll around and, and rise. And so that's just what the theater is kind of about. It's about this acting that goes on, these performances, how some players are just so emotive on the field and will, you know, over-exaggerate on purpose. And it's kind of just his meditation on that, how it's not just a physical exercise, but an emotional and performative one. And some players are just better at tormenting opponents than, than others are. And so I know that's a common complaint. It is kind of a culture aspect of the game thing that if you do get into soccer you just kind of have to accept i don't think it's ever going to change and there's it's not easy to like legislate out of the game uh, unless they do var i guess which again they're starting to do more video stuff um descriptions that jumped out here i think there's a few but again let's let's pick on some imagery and some similes maybe He says, wearing the mask of a saint, incapable of harming a fly, such a player will spit at his opponent, insult him, push him, throw dirt in his eyes, give him a well-placed elbow to the chin, dig another into his ribs, pull his hair or his shirt, step on his foot when he stops or his hand when he's down, and all behind the referee's back while the linesmen contemplate the passing clouds. Some are wizards in the art of gaining advantage. Wearing the mask of a poor sack who looks like an imbecile but is really an idiot, such a player will take a penalty, a free kick, or a throw-in, and then yada yada beyond what they're expected to and yeah these are just you know quick hitting little i don't know do you think they're condemnations he he seems kind of to think it's amusing i yeah i I got the sense that he found it amusing not necessarily that it was a condemnation but just just a part of like the fun of it is how i read it yeah especially like the last paragraph which is in keeping i think with um a lot of his other uh, religious imagery mm-hmm. where it's like that the one player is <laughs> acting like he's he's dying so there's like a a last a sacrament there <laughs> and yeah but yeah. then hours go by years go by until the referee orders them to take that corpse off the field and suddenly whoosh up jumps the player and the miracle of the resurrection occurs yeah like i just i get a chuckle out of that um i think he meant for it to be amusing 
No, it's great. And there's a little line in the middle of that where he describes the um, kind of medical staff that come out as having the holy hand of God or something. Or yeah. it's like the, and which is great because even in the modern game, there is some kind of numbing spray that basically every medical staff will use on people's like ankles, feet, and shins and stuff. And so it's long been a joke in the current game, the modern game, for people to joke about the spray. Where it's like, oh, the, you know, you can see the miracle spray came out and it's the miracle spray. <laughs> and so even, you know, even as the technology adapts, the culture stays somewhat the same, <laughs> which is kind of funny. Um, do you want to pick up your next one? Sure. Um, my The next one that I did is uh, the one that I referenced before, which is the language of war which is on page 19 and this is just an extended metaphor of soccer as war um, and this is where Galliano depicts a game using some some war terminology and, and it's <clears throat> he sticks with it too like the whole thing I was going to say some some imagery yeah <laughs> a, yeah a lot quite a bit <laughs> um, so I um, mean we start with uh, utilizing a competent tactical variant of their planned strategy our squad leaped to the charge surprising the enemy unprepared like that's the very first line i just what i i really enjoyed reading this one because i thought that uh, especially in the first paragraph with uh he did such a great job with that and what i like about it too is like we uh, games these these physical these sport games are simulations of war in in a lot of mm-hmm. ways right you've got these two competing sides and stuff so it's it's like a it's like a little war going on being waged. So I, I really enjoyed that. And um, But the thing is, is like I, I really enjoyed this one. But at the same time, I noticed, and this is kind of like my my beef with some of his writing thus yeah, far, yeah, yeah. Um, is that it's he starts off really strong and you get this clear analogy. And then it kind of sometimes he'll just like throw in a second metaphor and you're just like well that doesn't quite fit with like and these pieces are so short yeah that you kind of expect it to be this one extended metaphor each time um so in this one you're expecting it to be about war the entire time but then he says um when two of ours were knocked out of the fight the crowd called in vain for the maximum sentence but such atrocities fit for war and disrespectful of the gentlemanly rules of the noble sport of soccer mm-hmm. continued with impunity. So now he's breaking off from the imagery of the, the war and and he's saying that it's a gentlemanly sport, noble sport. And it's no longer war. Now it's a contest because there's a maximum sentence. So it's like almost more like gladiator style is what yeah, I got. So, yeah. So I was, I liked this piece, but at the same time, I was kind of like, well, like, I think that he should have just stuck with the war imagery or, or, you know, the war language. I think that would have made it even stronger. Overall, I still enjoyed it, but yeah, I just, I wasn't sure how you felt it's, about it. I about think that I read too. that as sort of in contrast to the first paragraph, which runs through, I guess, like World War II era traditional kind of military terms and tactics there's things about i guess there's battering ram which is definitely an old 
you know, concept and technology. But there's like artillery and positioning to shoot uh, sentries. It says ba- un- unassailable bastions. I, I guess to me it is maybe it evoking something maybe more medieval. But I guess I just read it as sort of like in most eras of warfare there have been rules, and so it like even within this battle. This is battled like lions later. But even with that, there's some kind of like acceptable terms. And I, I guess I just read it that way when it's like, yeah, th- there's disrespectful to the gentlemanly rules. Um, it was sort of like they're just bending or adhering to what what is supposed to be acceptable. But it's I don't know. I think I think I highlighted this one, too. I was glad you pointed it out. But I. I don't know. Maybe this is where I felt like with some of the extended comparisons or metaphors he was going with, it just, it didn't do enough with it creatively. Maybe that was my reaction Mm. where it was just kind of like, oh, this is, this feels typical or something to me. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there's again, a lot of language that is interesting and everything. And, but it's, I don't know. It felt, it's hard to call it cliched, but in terms of warfare description, (laughs) I feel like some of this stuff is pretty typical. It's like, yeah, it's, it's the usual language of offense, defense, and heroism. Um, not, yeah, I I don't think this one hit me or I'm glad you pulled it because to me it indicated one of those that as I was reading, I just kind of would glaze over one like this. I was like, oh yeah, it's interesting, but it didn't, you know, was anything that's going to stick with me. And I think there's a f- more than a few. I mean, when you're writing this many reflections, <laughs> inevitable. But there were more than a few that just kind of landed that way. Where I was like, oh, they yeah, clever or creative, but not um, nothing to stick with me. It's a good pick. Um, let's move on to a specific one. Or not specific, I should say historical one. Um, mm-hmm. Garincha, the Brazilian midfielder. This is from 118, so we're jumping quite far ahead. Again, I wanted to purposefully pick a few that were not just from the opening kind of broader history of soccer philosophy of soccer technical details stuff because i is it more than half so far has been about world cups and cups and goals and yeah and i I guess i'll ask you this before i even start with the garincha one have you learned a lot from it this is where i struggle because i know a lot of the broad outlines of soccer history but even i have picked up quite a lot like my my knowledge of soccer history does not go too far back beyond the 60s and so far it's mostly been that it's mostly been in the early 1900s um and then getting into the 50s and 60s and so i will say i've learned a lot but i i don't know because it's also brief i don't know if i'm going to remember a lot of it or sort of kind of internalize a lot of it but do you feel like you've picked up a knowledge of the history of the game or something I yeah I I feel like I'm I'm getting a lot of information about the history of it um but <clears throat> like the the descriptions for the world cup and stuff like the actual gameplay uh I mm, he didn't do a whole lot with like describing like the big moments in it or anything like that I yeah. I know that he ends with like a final summing up of of the scores and who plays first through third and stuff like that but otherwise, I, <laughs> that that part I, I have no real recollection of just because I was like, th- those are just like numbers being spit out at me. Totally. Yeah, it can feel that way. And, and when you want to write in this poetic tone register style, it's going to be tough to just all of a sudden have to weave in. Here's just some facts of like which countries were where and why. <laughs> yeah. It's sort of like who's ruling what part of the world or what war was occurring and why. It's um, 
it's difficult for sure, and I, I just don't think the balance plays out as well. There, there are definitely some of the history ones, too, that end very abruptly, and I just think, I don't know if he had a point, or even in, I don't know if he had, like, in a shock of inspiration, like, whereas in the first ones, I feel like if you don't want even want to say it's like a thesis or something, I, it has a very clear mission or the or opening ones have a very clear sort of purpose and they feel very focused. And the history ones are just kind of like, oh, did he just want to let us know a fact and then wrote two paragraphs instead of one sentence about it? It's I don't know. It, it didn't feel quite as driven to me, quite as focused. Right. So anyway, yeah. um, but I am going to pick from some of these because I feel like we have to. Let's talk about Garincha, uh, the Brazilian. He gives a, a brief history of him. He's a Brazilian midfielder who was a very influential and great player and in a couple World Cups was, you know, debatably the best player in the world. He survived an impoverished childhood like so many, a lot of South American players, and I know he's laid this out well. That's a very common story for a lot of South American players that as a continent has done quite well to sort of make the game available for everybody and sort of have people come from anywhere and succeed in the game and stuff. Anyway, um, different than how other countries do it. Like the U.S., for example, our soccer stars come from like usually wealth and privilege because of the way our um, system is structured. Theirs is very different. Anyway, um, so Grinchus survives poverty, also polio, and has some like pretty rare physical attributes for a player, uh, including a like curved or bent spine. I didn't look up the term for that, but that's just how the author describes it. And so he, you know, has some physical ailments, but overcomes them. And then despite his successes, which the author does describe, he also notes that his life ends when he's impoverished and very lonely. And this is a theme or kind of a motif that the author loves to come back to and dwell on um, how many heroic, you know, warlike hero players astound and inspire, and then they just end in misery. Mm-hmm. Definitely one of his common, I don't know, themes. Um, here's a couple yeah. of descriptions <laughs> of Garincha. Let's talk about similes if we haven't enough already. A couple of things he says about him. Like a child defending his pet, Garincha would not let go of the ball. And together, the ball and he would perform devilish tricks that had people in stitches. He would jump on her. She would hop on him. She would hide. He would escape. She would chase after him. In the process, the opposing players would crash into each other, their legs twisting until they would fall seasick on their behinds. Garincha did his rascal's mischief at the edge of the field along the right touchline, far from the center. Raised in the shantytown suburbs, that's where he preferred to play play and so a couple things there uh the the characterization personification of the ball is just like a woman to be won over and appealed to is another common motif it's clearly a belief the author has (laughs) that that's like the best the best possible simile or again like personification of something but i like the the image of him with the ball like having a pet you know this kind of intimate close connection to the ball and it's this gentle thing i I find sometimes Mm -hmm. guyano to be yeah uh, the the women or the ball as a woman thing we could just bump that to uh, i think that's a separate thing to discuss but i think often that when he wants to describe the players he loves he often does kind of go almost softer delicate or i don't know there's such a, a warm image there of like having this buddy it's like having your pal with you the ball and you kind of shepherd it around the field so i found that to be a pretty good representative simile to be like yes this is how he likes to this is how he likes to describe his players Yeah, and in this one, too, is another kind of mixed uh, metaphor where we have he's kind of like a jester, right? Right, right. He invokes the circus. But then in the very beginning, he he describes him as a useless bird. He looks like a useless bird. 
<clears throat> so again, we have that kind of like mixed. He doesn't stick with one analogy and 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 really delve into that. I mean, I think in the second and the third bits, yeah, he does. But in the very beginning, introducing Garincha, he's not. Uh, he's he's describing as, as something else, which is okay. Um, but yeah, that was something that I picked up on as well. But the thing that really stuck out to me too is that. Um, Galliano says, um, throughout his many years on the field, Garincha was more. In the entire history of soccer, no one made more people happy. And I was yeah. like, oh, that's really nice. It's a really sweet sentiment to have. And, and what a way to to juxtapose that with, like, the way that the doctors were shaking their head and, like, oh, he's useless, like, whatever. But actually, he's pretty great. Right. And then it ends. I mean, should we read the final sentence as a juxtaposition? Because <laughs> he loves these endings. Green he should, does, yeah. Green should die a predictable death, poor, drunk, and alone. Uh, the, the sentence before that was about how he was mostly a lucky player, and then it says, as they say in Brazil, if shit was worth anything, the poor would be born without asses. So there's also that, you know, very lovely, mm-hmm. I don't know what you'd call it, like an idiom or something to to yeah. conclude with. Um, yeah, it's a bleak ending for a player that apparently plays with such bliss and freedom and all the, all the kind of descriptions that the author loves. And yeah, I, I don't, it's another example of how when it comes to this really historic and historically specific, really both words apply, um, descriptions and moments and situations like I just don't know if his writing is up for that or meant for that and so I, I feel conflicted like I really enjoy some of that creativity and I think he describes Garincha well and then I just think mm-hmm. I don't know in, in three or four you know pages or not even pages in three or four paragraphs was this something that's going to stick with me is it memorable is it did I really learn anything um and so in that sense, it's, I don't know, does it have a depth that it's resonating with you, especially the history stuff? <sighs> not, not really. I like, I like that, like for the World Cup ones in particular at the beginning, he gives like these like quick snapshots of what's happening in the world at that time. Yeah, right. Which is interesting. because nice. Then it goes into like what the World Cup is doing and, like, who's in it and why is it that there's only, like, it's so Eurocentric and stuff like that. So I, I like that. Um, but, yeah, otherwise, eh, it's emotionally not as... It doesn't pique my interest as it, much as, as the, the other stuff. Well, I think, and it was the one I wanted to choose for the, that reason sort of specifically, just because it has such beauty in it even if it's like a brief kind of beauty but then in the end i'm left i don't know like just kind of shrugging at it or it's i I don't know i I already knew about garincha before this to be honest that's why i've like i've read some stuff about him and have like seen him and whatever pictures and videos or something and so it's kind of like well i'm not going to take anything new away about his physicality or performance but it is such a nice couple of moments of just yeah being in this person's tone and their view of the game and how they like perceive him so it's it's almost like a good hang with the author more than something like deeply revelatory i don't know maybe that's the point of some poetry too i mean 
which is, I know we've been calling these essays, but I think in terms of how I'm reading it, it's, you know, probably closest to poetry <laughs> in yeah. a lot of ways. Prose poetry. Yeah. No, definitely. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, I thought it showed the kind of both sides of that, the history aspects. Um, there's two more that we've chosen, and I think you've got both, so start us off with one of them. Sure. Um, next is uh, called the... <laughs> The opiate of the people. Oh yeah! <laughs> Here we go. Question mark in Mark's there. time. <laughs> um, so, opening line sums up this piece, and the opening line is: "How is soccer like God? Each inspires devotion among believers and distrust among intellectuals." So, this piece, um, Galliano gives us some history of the relationship between soccer and the intelligentsia. Um, especially mm-hmm. like his main focus is with what he calls leftist intellectuals, and that would be people who um, believe in Marxism, socialism, and um, that kind of stuff. So, yeah. Although he does mention what he called, what did he call the right, the right intellectuals, the 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 rightist, the right wing, where they believe he's like uh, <clears throat> those on the right believe that. Soccer is, um, yeah, and then the and then Bohr just was this kind of leftist intellectual. He kind of yeah, he just pulls quotes from one of each. Basically, it's like here's the here's the right, here's the left, and the right is like oh these riffraff. Yes, they can they get what they deserve. They they which is what they want, and and just let them play play and and not have any thoughts of their own is is what they deserve versus like the left which is interesting because it's um the left he he shows us like the evolution of thought on soccer so at the beginning they were like oh it's it's hurting the people in the long run because it's keeping them um it's the sedative of consciousness is Mm -hmm. what he said um and, and they're not, because they're so obsessed with this sport, um, they're not using their minds to uplift themselves in certain ways. Um, but then the evolution later being, oh, well, actually, it's a, a symbolic of human loyalty and of togetherness and, and of, you know, a society kind of coming together in a way. So I thought that was an interesting idea. I think the final quote is telling... Because uh, it is tough, in the given the format of this chapter, at least, to fully place the author. I don't even know if placing him politically would matter too much, but I think you can tease out and infer enough about his beliefs and everything, perspective. And he ends with the quote from a Italian Marxist. He says, Among them was the Italian Marxist Antonio Gramsci, who praised, quote, this open-air kingdom of human loyalty. And so I think there is a certain... That, that his point of view is sort of... I mean, maybe in his mind, like warfare, it's sort of a broader human truth truth that soccer lets play out these conditions of humanity that are I don't know not specific or totally restrained to current political movements I mean although they can certainly be associated but there there is some broader human conflict that you get to play out on the field um why soccer is unique in that way I guess we'll leave that up for other political pundits to sort of compare contrast or perhaps why because I I think the other thing is and he even acknowledges this briefly in one of the chapters I forget now but soccer I mean the easiest 
easiest way to explain its global popularity is the simplicity and accessibility. This is the classic, like maybe it's like an econ- economist perspective or something, but there's just very few games with as little rules and that require as little equipment or anything to play. <laughs> and like, even if you don't have goalposts, you can just set up arbitrary goal zones and play literally anywhere. So in the, and so it's just, I mean, that, that I think is always what I come back to when I think about it's just like, why is this the, the world's game versus other sports, maybe? Um, and it's just that little bit more dynamic than just running. Because, I mean, that's the other thing every culture can do. It's just like, well, <laughs> go run, I guess. That's the other thing. But um, it's a little bit more dynamic than just running in a line. Anyway, um, yeah, I enjoyed that. I was glad you chose it. I think the Borges quote made me laugh um, because it's funny to counter-program a discussion against the World Cup. That's just a losing strategy. <laughs> like, <laughs> never try and counter-program the World Cup, I guess. Uh, the other thing I'd bring up quickly, did you, that paragraph about River Plot versus Boca, the Boca Juniors teams, did that, like, stick with you? He comes back to them a couple of times. This is another thing that in my soccer youth, like in high school when I would watch a lot of soccer on TV on, like, Fox Sports, these are, like, the most famous Argentinian clubs, maybe infamous clubs, because of their the hatred they have for each other and the history of it. Did you pick up on that history there? No, I just, the only thing that stuck to me when I was reading that particular paragraph was that they named themselves the Martyrs, the Chicago Martyrs, and Mm. yeah, and the reference to the anarchist library. So those are the only two ideas that stuck out to me because of the context with which, like, the rest of the the essay piece was on. So, but otherwise, no, I have no idea. (laughs) Because that's that's another thing when I think about how he's treating and how he's kind of weaving in and out of history and clubs and and when it's unfocused in this way, right, when the kind of the bliss of reading this is like, you never know what you're going to get on the next page, right? Is it going to be a goal from a World Cup or is it going to be him thinking about the history of a club or something else? And so... Because it's it, those things have been meaningful to me, but only because I have done like Wikipedia plus levels of research about like what's going on with this River Plot versus Boca teams. You know, it's like <laughs> during some of the FIFA video game years when I was playing that, uh, those are the clubs like I would play a season with to be like, oh, I'm going to play as Boca and like try and beat up, you know, River Plot. Or it's just like one of those infamous hatred based rivalries in soccer. So anyway, mm-hmm. that makes sense that you're it's not registering a ton with you, but that I guess that's a different layer of meaning that we're getting from our backgrounds or perspectives because when that came up I was like oh yeah that is an interesting like example to pull from and one of the most obvious too to just show people like how soccer infiltrates political life or kind of like the conditions of life anyway so I thought that was meaningful let's jump to the final one which we both chose contact therapy on 93 the only one we overlapped on because I was not nice. really looking until yeah I checked at the end. Um, so let's end with that one. You can sum it up. You already did so. Sure. Um, Galliano introduces the psychiatrist Enrique Pichon Riviere, who used soccer as a kind of therapy at the asylum that he ran. And Galliano goes on to draw a parallel between the asylum and our consumer-driven society, implying that soccer can also be an effective therapy for the masses. And, and I, I chose this one, too, after choosing um, Opiate of the People, because I was like, oh, there's definitely a connection between, I feel like, those two pieces and and perhaps a, some more insight into his personal philosophies, not only about soccer, but about humanity in general. So, 
Well, and yeah, the in the middle paragraph or somewhere in the middle, it it does it again condenses beliefs. I think into a pretty digestible form. It, it, this is probably uh, the reason I was going to pick it. I think is because I thought it was the most meaningful. I don't know section or essay, just giving me a clear insight into his beliefs again. If you're trying to tease that out as we go, because in this middle paragraph he says, "Half a century later, we urban beings are all more or less crazy, even though due to space limitations, nearly all of us live outside the asylum, evicted by cars, cornered by violence, condemned to isolation. We live packed and ever closer to one another and feel ever more alone, with even ever fewer meeting places and ever less time to meet. In soccer, as in everything else, consumers." are far more numerous than creators and then he describes kind of the emptiness of of parking lots which definitely rings true but um yeah there's there's a lot to that i I think the final comparison is the best point though and his maybe why a lot of his tone comes across as i don't know like wistful or romanticizing or something because it's just i think he just loves the idea of people getting out there and playing and even maybe especially like not well or at least not perfectly that it's not a robotic trained thing but a rather just a game you enjoy and then occasionally there's flashes of brilliance I, I will say that I struggle with one thing in this perspective or having this point of view because I will agree that very broadly sports are in an odd spot societally because how often do we watch them versus even like enjoy them on our own it's such a strange skew like how many football watchers do you think ever go throw footballs around let alone like play a simulation of the game itself like no one does that because <laughs> it's like what adult 30 to 40 to 50 year old is going to go like pass block and like you know fight somebody in a parking lot on, on the offensive line like that's <laughs> never going to happen and so and let alone like again you know actual strategy or whatever um and there is an isolation to that too because so many team sports it's the other wall or barriers like how are you going to get 22 people to have the same schedule to like give up the same two hours a week or whatever it's you know there are adult leagues obviously the partly partially that's why i love playing tennis because you just need one other person (laughs) you need one other person (laughs) of similar skill and timing um so all that ideas about isolation and sort of i mean again maybe he overreaches or kind of goes a little too broad but at least he's showing us the things he loves about the game and misses about how we consume it currently uh that that idea of kind of condemning us as consumers i do get that i yeah so i tied that to the the opiate of the people um essay as well and uh the idea of like uh, specifically the human loyalty quote um, from yep. that piece and then tying it back to this piece which is about um, again like human loyalty if we think of it as like connection and so that connection right. we we get a little bit of that from watching sports if we're doing it in a social setting but actually yeah, yeah. playing the sport creates that loyalty because you have a team and you have each other's backs and I just like that connection that I'm seeing there in, in a, that kind of like thematic thread going through several of these pieces. I thought that was a really nice connection. Yeah, I think he sees the beauty of soccer in not only the plays and the turns and the skills, but, you know, the beer after the game and the discussions, the reprieve from the factory. That's just, again, the common sort of symbolic workplace that he keeps bringing up but yeah it's it's a reprieve and sort of a blissful one at that for people i I guess the only thing i struggle with on that point is the 
because he relishes and loves the pros or like the best players so much, it is difficult to then condemn how soccer has become sort of this filter, this like hyper professionalized filter for like, let's just get the best players into as much spotlight as possible (laughs) like because it's so obviously when you when you start to professionalize as deeply as we have any sport it's just like a trying to aggressively filter the best and chew through them and and maybe it's a bit callous or or vicious or something in that sense but it but he also loves that that you know he loves the best player he loves the person who who does something extraordinary and so it's i don't i don't know I, i think overall i get his point from the sort of tactics and efficiency sense but then it's like, well, that that version of soccer though has also brought us like objectively some of the best players ever. So also the I don't know. Yeah, I just think I think I guess in his view it's like if it hadn't have happened, his love wouldn't have changed or something because he already loved it when it was like a little sloppier and like a little more free form and and so yeah. Anyway, good meditations though. I, I find his perspective pretty fascinating and if not quite as focused as I was hoping, um, I think once you accept the form. And sort of accept that there's going to be some pretty meandering ones in here that there's plenty to enjoy. So, should we do this now? I wasn't sure if you wanted to even talk about this at all. Any thoughts about how he talks about women? (laughs) So, there's obviously very few women in the book, if any, because women's professional sports were marginalized or non-existent and even outlawed in some places, countries and stuff for a long time. And again, he's so historically based... I don't think you could write, for example, the history of soccer from 2000 on without women's soccer because it's become pretty huge and also some of the biggest, like the U.S., right, one of the biggest countries in the world, is their team is excellent. So it's like become a major event for for us and other countries too. Um, But yeah, it's just not a concern of his. And so to have that sentence in there, it's odd, right? It's almost as if like, it'd be better if you just didn't say anything. Like we get what you're writing about. You're writing about professional competitive soccer in the early 1900s. Like I understand that you'd have to write your own book dedicated to digging up like facts about the women's game to do it justice sort of like, cause in the popular historical conscience, it's not a major thing yet, but so I don't know. What did you think of that final sentence? Yeah, I was like, well, you've... So the only other female-gendered terminology would be, like, when he calls the soccer ball, like... The ball. She, yeah. Yep. Um, but then, like, that final sentence... So let's just read that final sentence real quick. Sometimes women take part two and score their own goals, though in general the macho tradition keeps them exiled from these fiestas of communication. Um, I was like... I had, like, two thoughts about that. One was, okay, so you're going to bring up um, female players, female soccer players, and have no follow-through on anything about that except to say it's a macho tradition and they're excluded. And then my other thought was, macho tradition is an interesting way to describe this considering yes he uses war terminology but then like with the theater terminology and that stuff where there's almost like histrionics going on that's usually in literature associated with more feminine aspects so i thought that was interesting too yeah i think on the whole 
Well, I don't want to dodge the conversation. Oh, maybe we might have to just because of the timing of the podcast as we've gone on. But because I do think it's its own complexity. Like we'd probably have to go pull most of the essays where he refers to the women as the ball or, or again, personifies the ball as a woman. I do think that it's it is kind of just it strikes me as kind of innocently traditionalist or sort of like innocently heteronormative if those if that's not a paradoxical statement or if that's not a um, oxymoron to say those things but it's sort of like it's he has this view of women uh, via the ball <laughs> where it's just kind of like you have to be a pr- in control and kind of f- go with it and and yeah you don't know what the ball is going to do but that's okay like you you speak tenderly to it and you and you take you pay close attention to it you care for it you love it and then it's okay that it, it doesn't always obey your commands and there is some like pretty bothersome disturbing language of control in that and it, i don't think there's just no way to square that circle or there's just no way it's going to be like insightful or interesting or i but i get the point of view and I think, yeah, a sentence like this, again, just struck me as really strange because it just, again, feels like its own topic or its own book. Like, if you want to discuss the history of the men's game, then just do so. Like, do so without guilt or shame or whatever. It's fine. But it's just to put in a sentence like that did hit me as very strange and just kind of un- it's like it. I don't think it reveals anything interesting or deeper. And it I also don't think it condemns him further as um you know, as sort of like a anti-feminist or anything like that, if you wanted to read the the ball personification in that lens or something. Um, I don't think this, like, deepened that for me either. It just kind of felt, I don't know, like aimless or something, pointless <laughs> in a neutral sort of sense. So Exactly, especially since yeah. he didn't follow through with any other ideas about, like, even in the other, the next bit that we read, there's nothing uh, to further explore the idea of, of women in soccer. So it's, it's yeah, just like introducing totally. a new line line of thought that he just never follows through on. It's so far, I, I will yeah. say, so far. Yeah, and we'll see if he as he gets further up in history. Though again, I think the first big moments in women's World Cup uh, international pop culture sense of that term would be in the '90s. So I don't know if he's going to talk about it, but it, it has become like a pretty major cultural event, at least again for the states and I think for a, a few other like big countries. So definitely significant but yeah i don't yeah i don't know if there's too much to say i think i I will say in the total you know open honesty sense i found some of the ball description stuff to be kind of charming in that again like innocent almost like he's like kind of has adults point of view or something which i think is that maybe sounds a little harsh but it it's like very simplistic but it feels pretty wife guy innocent to me of just like i just i just want her to love me you know i'll do anything and it i don't know again there's you could read that more deeply or um in a more sinister way if you wanted i think that's okay too but i don't know i found it to be pretty like approachably silly or innocent i guess but um yeah, language of control that's never never going to seem that never never comes off well. So, there's also that. Any final thoughts about how he how he treats the women so far? Nope, I'm good. Okay. Fair enough. We'll see what else he says. I mean, we had one sentence to analyze and then a bunch of figurative language. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, anyway, let's do our ending segments. Then we always end our part book, uh, part one book club, sorry, with the same final two segments. First, let's make a list, Amanda. You chose the theme of top three descriptions of goals or attempts at goals or specific plays, which he does do a lot of, especially after the first 30-ish pages. Like, that's when he really starts to go in on the specific players, moments in history, etc. Um, start us off with your number three. My number three comes from uh, the, 
the piece called Yashin? Yashin? Mm-hmm. Yashin? Yashin? I, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Obviously, I don't know much about soccer. Um, the the quote is, uh, so this is three descriptions of goals and attempts at goals or plays. And so uh, what I meant by this is just like any description of a play, uh, of an attempt to make an, a goal. Yeah, some, some action. I, I gotcha. Yeah. <clears throat> he liked to stop thundering blasts with a single claw-like hand that trapped and shredded all projectiles while his body remained motionless like a rock. He could deflect the ball with a glance. I, I thought that was really nice, especially the claw-like hand. And just imagining this guy has like a big enough hand, just one hand, to just right. like palm it and, oh, and yeah. grab it. Like, man, that imagery for me i was like wow that's impressive <laughs> it is pretty intimidating too to to have to try and picture it for sure yeah that's a good one mine i'll start with my number three goal by garincha on 113 bringing him back um there's two parts of this that i thought worked well the first is that it said garincha made like he was going to shoot then he wasn't he faked a kick at the near corner and the poor fellow defender crashed face first into the post so already i was like well that's pretty you know pretty brutal uh it's a slippery little what did they call him like a feisty devil or something before that yeah <laughs> but yeah um but then afterwards the final paragraph of the goal afterward with the ball under his arm he slowly returned to the field he walked with his gaze lowered chaplain in slow motion as if asking forgiveness for the goal that had all florence on its feet so i think yeah comparison to charlie chaplin obviously a pretty significant um illusion or comparison to make and i i guess i just found it the right level of sort of evocative and that's a famous enough reference where i can kind of you know it's a good strong visual of just this sort of goofy humble little guy that can pull these wonders and stuff so i I like that combination those two descriptions i thought that was good yeah um and i I liked his descriptions of garincha just in general too i think that he did he did him justice I do, yeah, um, I do wonder what the 20 pages of Grinchy would be instead of the three, you know? That's, yeah. that's one of those, I'm really trying to get away from those types of, type of uh, editor brain comments, but that I couldn't help but think it, too. He seemed really fixated on him and understood how to poke at his life or something. Um, what about yeah. for your number two? My number two is from the piece called Didi. Mm-hmm. Um, and the quote is shooting from afar he used to fool goalkeepers with the dry leaf by giving the ball mm. his foot's profile she would leave the ground spinning and continue spinning on the fly dancing about and changing direction like a dry leaf carried by the wind until she flew between the posts precisely where the goalkeeper least expected yeah I just like that imagery a lot so I that's great I, I actually as you read it this is the test that proves it's great I remembered it as soon as you said the leaf part I was like oh yeah that was really good <laughs> <laughs> I should have pulled that one that one was great yeah perfect perfect little wistful description of a little flighty thing you know very good very good my number two I can't remember and for the life of me I couldn't find it I only gave it you know three minutes of searching not 30 so you know slap me on the wrist if you need to Um, But there was a description of a player who, as a defender, who, you know, they're the furthest people from the enemy's goal, from the other team's goal. Look at at me using the military terms. But yeah, the furthest (laughs) players away. But there's a goal that a defender scores, and there's a little snippet about how the manager is yelling at him to stop. 
and like he doesn't stop he just go he just rampages down the field and scores and i just remember it because that's always hilarious there's players on teams who earn these reputations too where they have such an unearned confidence in shooting and all the you know fans want them to stop and it's like please never shoot stop doing this and they just can't you know they just take it all the way or they keep trying and yeah it's just a very relatable i thought it was a very funny i don't think the writing was particularly memorable there but i was glad to see that sort of quirk work its way in i was charmed so why why would the man I, I don't understand why the manager would tell him is he not allowed because they're oh ball? so in soccer players are allowed to go anywhere like there's no that's a thing and that's another thing is like rule wise it's very open-ended sport <laughs> like the the only rules are you know your goalie can only use their hands in the box and then you can't have offsides which means your your attacking players can't be beyond their defenders so like you basically can't have players go hang out by the opponent's goal because that would be boring and then they'd be that they would just sit there the whole game waiting so that those are really the only big rules in soccer there's others but like that's basically it and so defenders though traditionally tactically like they're not the best at scoring they're probably not the most agile or have the best kind of movement and so that when they try and score when they run up the field too much or overplay overextend that's when people get nervous mostly because they're like clumsy you know it's like Mm. well their their bodies aren't (laughs) they're not trained to be you know nimble footed and agile and sort of impressive in tight spaces they're more you know they're usually bigger clunkier defenders i guess and so that's it's always funny to see a defender who like gains some really strange confidence all of a sudden (laughs) um yeah anyway i enjoyed that little detail and i wish i could have found it but i truly could not (laughs) um my number one comes from goal by san filippo and this is the one where he was in the um, the market, and he replays it, replays his like big goal, the goal of his career, I suppose. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and uh, I'll just quickly. And then San yeah. Filippo points to a stack of mayonnaise jars and screams, "He put it right here!" People are looking at us like we're nuts. The ball game down behind the halfbacks. I stumbled, but it landed ahead of me there where the rice is. See? And then it goes on and on. But I just thought that was so great. And he's like so excited and effusive. And the entire store also, like they they pound their hands applauding. They're, the, people are like practically in <laughs> tears. Like it's just so, yeah. what a great scene. And like how yeah. meaningful it was for everybody there. Yeah, it's those small kind of, I don't know if I want to say local moments, but it does feel more like an intimate or kind of local history type of detail. And Mm -hmm. that I think, yeah, is where he's at his best. Soccer, not as globalized product, but as just like a a communal thing for for a much smaller group of people to, I don't know, commiserate over or whatever. Um yeah, that's great. Uh, though his focus on the World Cup again, like, I think he's, I don't think his views are mixed up, but it is a little messy because it's also like, well, he loves the World Cup, though, which is a very nationalistic thing. <laughs> it's like, that's a very, that's, a, that's again, there's it's, uh, there's some, like, other things wrapped up in that, too, that um, I don't know if his, like, 
writing is fully up for exploring that. Anyway, uh, page 103 is my number one goal. Goal by Zizinho. I'll read the paragraph in full. This Lord of Soccer, Grace, scored a clean goal, and the referee disallowed it unfairly. So Zizinho repeated it step by step. He entered the box at the same spot, dribbled around the same Yugoslav defender with the same delicacy, slipping by on the left foot as before, and he drove the ball in at exactly the same angle. Then he kicked the ball angrily several times against the net, which that's sometimes players do do that. Uh, the referee understood <laughs> that Zizinho was capable of repeating that goal 10 more times, and he had no choice but to allow it. Then it ends there. Just a hilarious little image, but then the ending with the shot at the referee, treating the referee as kind of this like impassive victim of fate or almost like he had to bow down to the skill of the player you know this kind of like well I guess I just have to reluctantly accept this or something it was I thought yeah just another dig at the referees I think he he too Guyano he too loves to hate the referees but I yeah I just that when it when you put in the prompt that was the first goal that came to mind just because of the the hilarity of it and the kind of dominance of the player to do something like that like it's mm-hmm. yeah the boldness of it all and something you definitely would not see in soccer today though I will say there have been a couple modern players who are very famous for having like one signature move and for some reason it continues to work there was this one guy Arjen Robin uh, Netherlands I I think he's from but he was maddening to me to watch because it's like he had one move and it it never failed <laughs> like he would do it every time and it always worked and we're just kind of like how how do we let this happen like what's going on <laughs> how come nobody he always cuts in from the you know he always cuts in on the right side into the left like it's the same anyway but so i found that kind of funny a nice observation mm-hmm. so i like play, the uh, the yeah. kicking at the net but but i guess like yeah poor sportsmanship is not a penalty thing because like he might get a card for that it depends depends multiple kicks i think you would but it is you do see it often where after like a really riotous goal one of the players will just kick it into the net again sort of like a releasing steam releasing frustration kind of move and that does not get carded not as far as i can tell or have seen um Let's do our final ending segment, then, Amanda. We'll wrap up this pod. We'll do our Please Continue Make It Stop segment, which is just what it sounds like. We're going to pick one thing we love about the book and wish to continue, and then one that we don't like and want to make it stop. Um, I'll do my Make It Stop first, because I think I've made the point well by now, or at least repeatedly. I just think his historic-slash-historical stop-offs are just not as effective. I I think the first, again, 30-ish pages, that poetic form was letting him explore more broad topics really well, and it kind of, I think, gave him more freedom. But then when he's restrained to, like, a moment or a specific game or a play, I just don't feel like the writing has been as good there. Um, I've enjoyed some of the history, to be clear, like, and I've even learned a couple things, which is nice. But I just don't think the writing's style is going to make me remember that stuff. Instead, I'm going to be left remembering just sort of the way he viewed the game. So I just, you know, more opinion-based writing, maybe a little less history. I don't know. That That's the only one I could come up with. Yeah, for me, my, my please continue and make it stop are... Uh, I've already kind of mentioned it as well, which is like my please continue is the the metaphors and similes to describe soccer. So the, the let's make a list thing, like I really loved that type of writing the, the where it gets uh like his poetic ability to describe something like that and and somebody who has no idea about soccer and to appreciate the descriptions like that um i that's what i enjoyed 
However, at the same time, and I've mentioned this before, the, the mixed metaphors within the same piece, they, which is like maybe me just being nitpicky, I don't know, but mm-hmm. they, these are such short pieces that to me, if you're going to write about, for example, like in the language of war, if you're going to write about it as a war and you start off so strong with the, the war language and you could really do some interesting things with that, but then to just suddenly back off and then change it to a contest and then back off from it further. Right. Um, right. Like it to me and, and and then introduce new metaphors within that, different metaphors where it's kind of convoluting the original idea. And even the title is the language of war. <laughs> so yeah, that totally. kind of stuff just I, I thought that maybe he could have tightened that up a little bit. Um, yes. And it doesn't bother me across the pieces. Like, yeah, like he compares it to war. He compares it to a play. He compares it to um, an orgasm at one point. Like there's, mm-hmm. and and to a religious experience. Like all these things are really interesting as as pieces. But even within those pieces, sometimes he's like, you know, introducing new ideas that I'm like, uh, it's... It's such a short piece. You can really just dial it in. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, the mixed metaphor of it all, he, he's just that writing style where he's not content with one description. He needs five. And I just think that's part of what you get with that too, where it's, it does occasionally like run off the rails or overextend whatever comparison to use there. And so I a hundred percent get that. Yeah. I, I think I've been enjoying that aspect of it, but yes, it's very valid to, to get a little wrapped up. I will also say when he stuck with the same, sort of analogy like the war piece from before that one didn't provoke or grab me as much i think maybe because i don't don't know it just felt a little shallow but yes i do agree with you that it's he's definitely being bold and kind of jumping around which i do enjoy um my please continue is just just keep musing more broadly i i just again say it for the hundredth time (laughs) i thought the first like 15 to 20 of the essays were the best by far and i also do like that he's been he occasionally in the history sections will intermingle with like some thoughts about the game or aspects of the game and i just think that that's his the best stuff that his writing is exploring um i I know it's not going to be like that it's clear that he is going to keep going through the history of the the world cups and everything and so you know there's been enough to enjoy there but um but yeah i think that's that would be my my one wish is just keep sprinkling in these very broad takes about yeah, just his philosophy of what soccer represents and what it means. I, I will mention this connection briefly. It does remind me of um, Nizuka Matatil, World of Wonders, a bit. I like this more overall, of like far more, but I will say that it, it's reminding me of it because there's one part that I think is extraordinarily good and then one part that I think is just okay. And so it's kind of a back and forth whiplash effect of like, well, I thought that essay was amazing and really brilliant. And then the next one, it's like, well, I thought that was okay <laughs> or maybe aimless or not yeah it's like there it wasn't as bold as i hoped or something so i don't know it's um it's interesting in that way it's got that kind of dichotomy in it or something excellent uh any final thoughts on the first half of soccer in sun and shadow by eduardo guiano 
Uh, nope, I'm I'm good. Excellent. Well, our book club episodes drop every Friday, so if you're listening to this on its release date, which you're likely not because we just keep them up in the feed and people kind of go back and forth between the books, but if you are, we'll release part two next week on Friday. We will, at that point, have finished the work, so check us out then. Um, if this episode didn't appeal to you, thanks for listening all the way through anyway, but we have other books coming up soon, so check out our, again, Instagram and Facebook feeds to learn about those, or just, you know, listen in on the podcast and you'll hear what else we're doing soon. I think the next book's a novel, right? A Good Family? Yes. By A.H. By Kim. Kim. Gotcha. Yeah. We'll just mention that one today. We'll cover the rest of the books on the book recommendation episode in the book club part two. So again, listeners, check those out. Thanks as always for listening. And until next time, we'll see you between the pages. Yeah.